fundamentals of the faith, our, our basic doctrines. It's not really our doctrinal statements so much as it is backing up and saying, let's re-remember what we believe about the basics of the Christian faith. Now, I don't want to be insulting to anyone who's been a Christian for a long time and has these truths narrowed down and uh, believed very securely, except to say that you can never, ever, ever, ever move beyond the basics. Um, anytime you think, I've got that down, I'm going to move on to something more advanced or something deeper or something more interesting, you've just really said something about God that's not helpful. The, if that were the case, we would read our Bible one time and be done, right? We always need to be reminded of these things. Today we're going to look into God's attributes. Now this is absurd that we're going to try to do this in about a half an hour. That's like saying, uh, let's look at the Encyclopedia Britannica and just summarize it here in the next, uh, next few minutes. Of course, you are old enough to remember that, an actual encyclopedia set, Remember that? The guy came to the door and, and made mom feel guilty, so she bought him, and dad came home and was pretty upset about that, but that's for another time, too. But we are going to be very uh, uh, sumeric. We're going to summarize it, and there's no time to be encyclopedic uh, about it. Have you ever been misunderstood in a significant way? I was... Um, I remember very carefully, I, I was, I was at, uh, a, a very... Very new in California. It was before Kim and I had really gotten to know each other. We, uh, there was a, a, a girl that I was talking to one Sunday night after church. We were just sitting with hundreds of people around just talking and asking questions. And I, I thought we had a good conversation. And um, left. And about three days later was, um, was shocked to hear that she was telling people that we were now dating Man, I'm smoother than I thought I was. <clears throat> it just wasn't true. It was, it was very grievous to be misunderstood. Misunderstandings have severed friendships, created feuds, destroyed families, split churches, divided nations. They've even caused wars. Nowhere, though, is misunderstanding more serious than in misunderstanding God. I think the greatest sin in the Bible is outlined in Psalm 50, verse 21, where God says to the Jews, you thought I was just like you. In other words, bringing God down to our level, that has horrific consequences. What's your view of God? And is it an accurate view of God? One of my favorite moments was um, when um, my, one of my sons, just for argument's sake, let's just call his name Luke, since he's away at college. Um, it was Luke. He was probably five years old or something. We've been going over a little simple catechism on the attributes of God, and uh, we were watching TV, and he, uh, we had some ice cream, and I remember, it's always good to have ice cream with your son when you're watching TV. And uh, he said, Dad, is... is is God everywhere? And I said, yes, Luke, God is everywhere. I was feeling pretty good about that. He says, well, is God, is God in, in our city? I said, yes, Luke, God is in our city. Is God in our house? Yes, Luke, God is in our house. Remember, that's the, the fact that God is omnipresent. He says, oh, okay. Is God in my ice cream? Oh. Well, I mean, if you say yes, you got problems. And if you say no, you've got problems. 
And so I did what every good theologian father does. I said, go ask your mother. <laughs> What's your view of God? How accurate is it? Is he a short order cook? Do you treat God as if you just kind of show up and tell him everything you want and expect that he's gonna rattle it off to you? Is he a stern school teacher? Every one of us had that one school teacher. Mom was my seventh grade school teacher. I will never, ever forget what she was like and how she uh, uh, put the fear of God in me. An impersonal, impersonal scientist just kind of wound the world up and let it go. A clever magician just does Neat things occasionally, maybe during Jesus' life, but has given up on the miracle making. Maybe just a kind, gentle, senile old grandfather. Doesn't know much, but sure likes to see you every now and then. A Mr. Fix-It. Every time you got a problem, you just show up with God. Or is God a coiled snake ready to strike? I can't imagine the pain that we must cause God by misunderstanding his character and his nature. All of us stand guilty of a threefold offense to the truth of and the truth about God. We tend naturally to humanize God, make him like us. We naturally tend to deify man and think greater things of man than we ought to. And because we humanize God and deify man, that leads us to minimize sin. Because once you, you close the gap between God and man, then, then sin becomes justifiable. What we're gonna do today is take a very high altitude approach to looking at God's infinite nature and, and attributes. I mean, it's just almost silly to say we're gonna take a look at God's infinite nature. Isn't that oxymoronic by, by simply saying that? How can you possibly put everything we know about God into a 30-minute little discussion? Psalm 89, verse 7 and 8, describe God as awesome and mighty. God is to be feared. Isaiah 43, 10 says, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. God says, I am it. He says in Isaiah 42, I will not give my glory to anyone. In other words, I'm the only one worthy of being God. And probably the, the thing that we need to remember most is it's, if, you, if, if I had a life verse, it would be this one, John 17, 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. It's pretty important, pretty impressive. He's about to define eternal life, which we would typically say is eternal life, living forever. He doesn't. He says, and this is eternal life. He defines it as knowing God and Jesus Christ who God sent. So eternal life, true life in God is defined by the pursuit of and the acquisition of understanding of God. So the question we have to ask if we're pursuing eternal life is are we on that path? Are we looking at the acquisition of knowledge about God so that we can know God personally? Jeremiah 9, 24, he understands and knows me is the one to whom God will look. So are you one who understands and knows God? Let me give you a little uh, humbling exercise in thinking. If you're a parent... Unless God does something radically different, your God is going to end up being your kid's God. If you're a pastor or a teacher, the one you teach is going to be the one that your church or parishioners or people in your small group, that's their God. 
When you evangelize, the God that you present to them, that's their God. That is a serious stewardship to be able to articulate to people what God is like. You know, there was a, a little girl who was, had a big piece of butcher paper and was drawing, and drawing feverishly. And, and the, her father said, what are you drawing? And she said, Dad, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a picture of God. And he was trying to correct her theology. And he, she, he, she, he said, listen, uh, sweetheart, you, you, you can't draw God. No one knows what he looks like. And she said, they will when I finish. You know, we kind of do the same thing. We create an image of God and we think that that's accurate. I think the most dangerous thing that we can do is think that we have our, our understanding of God wired. The second, the moment, the time when we stop coming to God's word and being wowed and having aha moments and just saying, what a God, we're in serious trouble. Now, in looking at God's attributes, we're going to have to dive into the deep end of the pool for a minute. I want, to, I want you to learn two words. Most of you know them, but you need to understand them. There are communicable attributes or characteristics of God and incommunicable attributes or characteristics of God. Um, communicable attributes are things about God that we can imitate, emulate. Uh, incommunicable, incommunicable attributes of God are things that we cannot. So this, let's have a little informal time. Give me a communicable attribute of God. Anything. Love. Why is that communicable? God is loving. We're to be loving. We can share in that attribute of God. Give me another communicable attribute. Mercy. God is merciful. James 1, judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. We're to be like that as well. Another communicable attribute. Okay, I'm deaf. What was that? Grace, grace peace, uh, uh, grace, uh, even righteous anger. There's a lot of things. Give me some incommunicable attributes of God. What is God like? What are ways that God is like that you cannot be like him? Did I hear a woman say omniscient? Because my wife, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I was convinced that my mom, all mothers have the gift of omniscience for a season. They just know everything. Anyway, um, omniscience, exactly, good. What else? Omnipresence, omnipotence, we don't have all power. Other ways that, what is uh, God's attribute, an attribute of him that we could never share in? Eternity, exactly. Well, part, here forward, yes, but not here backwards, Right. His creatorship. Can anyone create the world? I think we share a little bit of that when we're, we're creative, but no one can, can put together the, the planets and the stars. The point is that God is an interesting being in that he tells us to be like him in ways that we can, but there are ways that we could never be like him and, in, and, and we, we really can't get our arms around. I mean, just, just think for a moment about God's, we'll come back to this, God's omniscience and, and God's omnipresence that he can be entirely and fully devoted to giving attention to each one of you and knowing every one of your thoughts right now is amazing, but multiply that by everybody in the world. I just saw, did you see the um, uh, report? I just saw it yesterday that they just found an unknown uh, uh, group in the Amazon that they never knew existed and they think that there's a group beyond, uh, uh, a few miles of that that, that, that that has been undiscovered. God knows it goes beyond that. I mean, he, knows, he knows the inner workings of every atomic particle. He knows every 
galaxy in, in space, you, you start understanding how much God is God and that that infinite being would care for you as if you were the only person on the planet. What? That's an awe, a wow moment. What a God. So we have to understand that God is, 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 has attributes that we should imitate and attributes that we should worship. Uh, I think the first one I want to talk about is, is interesting. It's a communicable and an incommunicable attribute at the same time, and that is his holiness. I would also say that God's holiness might be the mothership of all the attributes. In other words, in every one of his attributes, he is holy. Now, holy has two definitions. Holy means morally separate, morally pure, and in that way, we're called to be like him, distant from sin, distant from from unrighteousness. Holy, H-O-L-Y. But holiness also has the idea of W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, entirely different than us. Completely different than us. Again, back to Psalm 50. You thought I was just like you, the psalmist says. When we humanize God, we are in gross error of idolatry. God is infinitely not like us in his holiness. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you? And then Moses says, majestic in holiness. Who can be like God, majestic in holiness? Psalm 99.9, worship at his holy hill for God, for the holy is the Lord God. Remember Isaiah uh, um, 6, just, you have to match Isaiah 5 with Isaiah 6 because uh, Isaiah 6, a king, um, Uzziah dies, but in Isaiah 5, there's, you know, woe to you who are, you know, valiant and strong drink, who begin the morning getting drunk, and then all these sins and sexual perversion. But then he says, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. In other words, you've defined your morality entirely separate from God. In the midst of that culture, here comes Isaiah. He goes probably to worship in the temple. Is caught up in a vision which was more and less than reality. It was more real than this world, but less real like he couldn't ask someone to see it. He's caught up in this vision of God, and he sees this... um, this vision of God sitting on the throne, probably in the temple, and uh, two angelic creatures are saying back and forth to each other, what? Holy, holy, holy. Now, why does it say holy, holy, holy? Someone says, well, that's how the song goes. That, I know it came just the opposite. Why would, what is the, uh, there's no other attribute that's spoken of God in what's called thrice-fold repetition, Three times in a row. He's never called merciful, merciful, merciful. Kind, kind, kind. Just, just, just. Wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. Loving, loving, loving. Nowhere has he called anything three times in a row except holy, holy, holy. And this not only here, but 850 years later in Revelation 4, John shows up in a vision, sees the throne room, had their creatures hovering around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. Isn't it interesting for almost a thousand years those creatures had not wearied in praising God's holiness. Do you think they're still doing it now? I mean, I, I think it's fair to say in, in our sanctified imagination that were we to be able to, to have a vision of the throne room that we would see angelic creatures and hear them saying to one another, holy, holy, holy. 
To have that vision is so different. John himself, the best friend of Jesus, leaning on on Jesus' breast during the, the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus loved, all this incredible familiarity and, and this, this intimacy with Jesus sees Jesus in Revelation chapter one and instead of saying, hey, high five, give me some knucks, what does he say? He says nothing. He falls down like a dead man seeing the resurrection, resurrected, glorified Christ. In other words, When Jesus is unveiled in all of the fullness of God, the attributes of God, which reside best and and most clearly understood where? In Christ. When we see that, John, his best friend, there was no hug. There was no how you've been doing. He fell down like he was dead. God's holiness then is the first and final expression of who He is. He is holy. He's also righteous and just. That flows out of that, which means he always does what is right. How about this? He never does what is wrong. Um, So he's holy. He's righteous. He's just. Let me just throw some attributes at you for a second, okay? Um, Sovereignty. Uh, We're going to come back to this in Romans 8. We're going to come back to this in Romans 9. Sovereignty is God's um, rule over everything. It's where God expresses himself as the sovereignty. He's the king. Good, class. He's the king. He is the one who is the king and the sovereign over all. He's sovereign. I've sworn by myself, Isaiah 45 says, um, in righteousness, will not turn back, that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to me one day. And then Jesus says the same thing, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is sovereign. He's Lord. He's the master. God's sovereignty is, is probably the most rebelled against of all of God's doctrines. It's, it's one that... Mortal humans are not so comfortable uh, receiving. Why? Because then we're immediately told what to do. We're immediately told that there is someone who can tell us by virtue of his sovereignty, his kingship, that he can tell us what to do. God's sovereignty, and we can go through dozens, dozens, hundreds of passages on his sovereignty, but the implication is simply this. God's sovereignty, his rule over all, is either our greatest comfort or our worst threat. If God is sovereign, then you can back up and say, we have a providential sovereign God who is in control, who has never said, whoops, who has never said, "Uh uh-oh, who does not in any sense know anything about not knowing about anything. So what do you mean by that? Well, the, the, one of the, the raging debates today is <clears throat> called openness theology. Have you heard this? Where the idea is that God, God's sovereignty exists to his power and rule in what's in the present. It does not have anything to do with the future. So the openness of God is that God learns as we learn, uh, uh, as, as time goes along. He, he has no predictive power He's a, no, of the future, no foreknowledge of the future. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. 
His kingliness, his sovereignty is related to so many other attributes, namely his eternity. God is the, is the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, always the ever-present I am. He is always sovereign, which means, we'll bleed over into his eternity a little bit, that he is king to Adam and in the final eternal kingdom right now. Is that a bizarre thought? I mean, he, he is there right now. I, we'll come back to that in his eternity. Let's just look at his eternity now. Let's, let's flip over that. I'm the first and the last. I am even from eternity. Isaiah 43, 13. If God is the eternal I am, and he, he, he was, was, is, is to come, do you really, let me give you some encouragement. God is already there with you tomorrow. Think about that. He's already there. He was with you yesterday. He was, we were in his mind before the world began. He's outside of time and yet in time at the same time. Just melts your mind. I, eternity, when I think of God's um, attributes, I, I I'm, I'm get lost in wonder, but this one, this one hurts my brain. To think that God will be, is eternal from now on, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. I like that. We will be too. But when you start flipping that the other way, and you think that God has always been, always, always, there's not enough places to walk, Always. He never began. Just noodle on that a minute. And when you start, your brain stops, starts hurting, that's called worship. Because you realize God is not like me. He has always, always been. The fact, A.W. Pink talks about the, fact that, about the fact that there was a time, if time could be called time, when God dwelt all alone in just the totality of his Trinity, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, but forever backwards. Forever. Always was there. If there was a there. Then, when if there was a then. Was always. If you understand that, can you, I'll meet you at the prayer room afterwards and you can help me to, to do that. What a God we have who's, who's already there. I mean, here's an odd thought. He is already there with you in eternity after your death right now. Does that melt your brain a little bit? He is, there, he is everywhere in eternity simultaneously at the same time. Because time doesn't affect God the way it does us, but that's for another sermon. Immutability. God is immutable. It means he does not, man, I love this. God does not change. I am the Lord, I do not change, Malachi 3, 6 says. It was Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. The unchangeableness of his promise, of his purpose. It is impossible for God to lie. God cannot, God will not change. God has never had a fickle moment in his life. God doesn't wake up one day and say, I think I like them. This is so different um, from, from the gods of the ancient Near East. 
who they were, they were always, the people were always in the, in the position of appeasing them because you woke up and you didn't know what mood your God was in. Is he happy? Is he sad? If he likes us, we'll have rain and we won't have famine. We'll, our crops will grow. But if he doesn't, it's, you're always figuring out. Remember that prayer I read a few months ago, the prayer to the unknown God, where it's just painful, where it says to the God I know or may not know, to the goddess I may or not know or may know, to the, to the unseen God I may know or may not know, just grasping for the light switch in the dark. Our God doesn't change. Teach me your ways, O God, that I may come to know you, Exodus 33 says. We've talked about this before. That word way is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's the word derek. And it's, if you think of a, a field with high grass, if you walk through that field one time, you can kind of see where someone's walked. If you walk back the same way, it beats the grass down a little further. If you walk the same way back and forth every day, a hundred times a day for a hundred days, what do you have? You have a path, a trail, you have a direct, a way. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may come to know you. So the way we know God is to know his ways. That's impossible if he changes ways every day. Let me give you something that might sound a little strange, but is wonderfully orthodox. God, in his immutability, God in his not changeableness, is wonderfully predictable. God's predictable. Which again, if you'll read the idolatry in Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel, especially the latter parts of Ezekiel, the gods, the idols constantly had to be appeased and ministered to and, and um, uh, cajoled because you didn't know which way they were going to go. God's predictable. You want to know what God is like today? Look at the Lord Jesus. Well, how would God deal with a woman who is broken in her sin? Well, Jesus dealt with a woman at a well. How would God deal with a smart aleck Pharisee who was trying to trap him and trump him with humanistic reasoning? Well, we can see that in the multiple encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He's predictable. He doesn't change. That is so wonderfully encouraging and comforting. He's the same. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies are new. How often? When you wake up tomorrow, morning, he's gonna say, you know, I kind of ran out of mercy. I used it over in, you know, uh, uh, Libya today with some people I saved. So no mercy for you guys, but maybe tomorrow. His mercies are new to us every morning. He is always the same. All right, let me just tackle the two, uh, a couple of big ones real quick. Um, omniscience. He knows everything. Job 34, 21, his eyes are upon the ways of man. He sees all his steps. Hebrews 4, the eyes of the Lord. Um, uh, uh, actually, I want you to look at Hebrews 4 because I want to I tell you a story about Hebrews 4. Um, and with the knowledge of God. This is, uh, this is one of those underlinable passages in the Bible. Related to his omniscience. Hebrews 4, 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but how many things are open and laid bare? What does it say there? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. His omniscience is not just some generic knowledge. It's related to the fact that we have to give an accounting to him. His omniscience is personal. 
And the great passage that talks about God's omniscience and God's omnipresence, Psalm, no, I don't have enough fingers, 139, right? Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from what you know? The answer is nowhere, nowhere. Um, Oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately equated with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it. You've enclosed me behind and before. Your hand is heavy upon me. Uh, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He knows everything. Later in the psalm, he says, darkness and and light are alike to thee. In other words, we think we can hide from God's omniscience. The, the, um, one of the things I, I like to think about with some of those um, Discovery Channel shows uh, is the, uh, the bottom of the sea. They look at the Mariana Trench and all those creatures and fish they've never seen in the bottom of the ocean under uh, you know, how many pounds of pressure I can't even imagine. God knows it. God's there. He knows it. He knows all the creature, creatures. He knows when the last dinosaur took his last breath. He, he knows everything, which is related to numbers, number are we six or seven. His omnipresence. God is everywhere at one time. God is everywhere at one time. The eyes, Proverbs 15, three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Psalm 139, seven, where can I go from your presence? Spirit, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. When you put omniscience and omnipresence together, you understand what A.W. Tozer said when he, when he said, every man or woman, when, when we sin, we are practical atheists. What he means by that is we may say we believe in God's omniscience and omnipresence, but we're acting as if he doesn't exist. Probably the the best, most powerful antidote for any sin in mind or body you would ever commit is a good healthy dose of God's omniscience and omnipresence. How much would it change if we believed what is true that God sees and is, is there? Maybe you, you were younger. You used to happen to me all the time. I spent a significant amount of time in the principal's office, but that's for another time. Um, you ever been doing something and then found out that someone was watching you and caught you? That is, from books I've read, that is a really traumatic experience. You do understand that God sees and knows everything. He also perceives everything. He knows what we think. He knows what I think. That's amazing. All of these are worthy of their own study. Omnipotence, he is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Revelation 19, 6, for the Lord our God, the Almighty One reigns. 
When you see God's omnipotence in the scriptures, it's usually in reference to his power to create. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His preservation of all things. Hebrews 1, thing, 1 verse 3 says he sustains all things by his power. His providential care for us in Psalm 37, 23 and 24. His, he's powerful enough to know about and care about everyone. Do you believe in God's omnipotence? It's typically related to our prayer life. When we believe in God's omnipotence, we pray with a great degree of faith. But sometimes I think we pray hoping he's omnipotent, hoping he has power, rather than praying because we know he's powerful. Nothing is too difficult for him, is it? What number do you have if you're taking numbers? About number nine or so? Or is it eight or six? Love, whatever number you are, love. Um, God is love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in the while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We spent weeks and weeks talking about this back in Romans 5, that God's love is different than us. Our love is... We honor someone who, who sacrifices themselves for a friend. The guy dives on the grenade to save his platoon mates. We say that's great, wonderful, virtuous. What a great hero. What a great example. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't dive on the grenade for his friends. He would not do that. Why? Because no one's born the friend of God, but he dives on the grenade for his enemies. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love differently than, than someone. It's, he dies for sinners. What a God, what love there is. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is his greatest demonstration of love in that he, he sent Christ to be our sacrifice for us, to die in our place. Let me add uh, maybe... There's a lot of them. Let me add just a couple more. Truth, God is truth. Um, O Lord, God of truth, Psalm 31, 5. Psalm 117, 2. The Lord, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. God cannot lie. So his words are true and truth. We were at Shepherd's Conference this last week and the the theme was... um, uh, the inerrancy of God's word, that there are no errors in it, which is fun, founded in the attribute of God that he's truthful. God, everything God says is true, and if it's true, the implications are mammoth. Just think of the truth of heaven and hell. If, if God only tells the truth, and God is Jesus, and Jesus spoke of a great day after the resurrection we could spend eternity with him and a horrific day for those who would reject him who would spend forever in hell. That's a powerful, what do we call it? Truth. So when we open the pages of scripture, we're not just seeing the revelation of God, we're seeing the truth of God and truth from God. And just a last one. We could go hundreds of God's attributes, but this is, let me, let me give you a last one that's two sides of the same coin. Grace and mercy. He's gracious and merciful. And the reason I say that is grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Really interesting how God displays those time and time again. Uh, in Exodus 34, 
He gives this whole list of attributes. I, I think it's remarkable to see how uh, um, he, he describes himself. You know, Moses was wanted to see um, a vision of God's glory. Let me see you. And he says, okay, I'm gonna put you in the cleft of the rock. And he comes back and he pat, passes by, lets him see this afterglow. But what's interesting, and Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God said, I will proclaim to you my goodness. Moses saw something. And all of us want to know, what did he see? We don't know. We can ask him someday. But what he saw was not as important as what he heard. And this is what he heard. He passes by and says, God passes by and says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What I think is remarkable is there are eight demonstrations of God's love, gracious, gracious is mercy, before there's God's wrath. He gives grace and gives mercy, which is related to his being wrathful. That's another attribute, but it's a category of grace and mercy because he has every reason to be angry and righteously mad at sinners and demonstrates grace and compassion by giving us a heartbeat, gives us what we don't deserve. And by not, mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. I told you about our kids when they were younger and trying to teach them a little bit about the gospel and they would, sometimes we would say, you know, because you deserve the rod of reproof, um, you should be spanked today, but God doesn't always spank us um, so that's called mercy. We're not gonna spank you today, which makes him, the, the child, the next time he's disciplined, beg for mercy. We should always beg for mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you. And thank you, for, thank you for not giving me what I deserve. But he did give Christ what we deserve, right? Okay, we got just a couple minutes. I'm over. Any, any questions? Um, it's just funny. I'm, I'm gonna do the attributes of God in 30 minutes. Yeah, right. I almost, I almost wanna say, I'm so sorry, God. I, try, I told him about you in just a half an hour or so. You know, how long would it take to read that? And we took 30 minutes or 45. So any questions about anything we said today, though? Yes, David. What was that grace and mercy? Yeah, it's two sides of the same coin. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Undeserved kindness, loving kindness. Mercy is him withholding what we do deserve, which is wrath and hell and um, uh, discipline all the time. So see that his, that's what it says, his mercies never cease. Think about that. His withholding of his wrath never cease. That's, if we have a heartbeat, we're experiencing grace and mercy. So those two, I think, I don't think those are even separate attributes. I think they're the same attribute viewed from two different angles, grace and mercy. Giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. They, they, they go hand in glove, so good. Gary. A good question. What's the, God, what's the most contrasted attribute between um, the Islamic God and uh, the God of the Bible? I would say holiness. Because that, 
I mean, I want to think about it more, but holiness in, is communicable in that it calls people to be morally um, uh, above reproach. Um, and certainly in this extremist stuff we're seeing, it doesn't. And certainly the Quran doesn't do that. Forget, you know, peaceful or extreme uh, Islamic. The Quran, the Muslim Bible tells you to be unmerciful and, and that, that Allah is, is like that. So I think that the God of the Bible is fundamentally different than them in that he is um, in his holiness. But you also see that God's holiness was most revealed and most satisfied in, at the cross. So I, I, I mean, I, without having thought about it more, it's a good question. I, I, would, I would default to he's holy and Allah is not holy um, not the one who has people flying to plane, planes into um, buildings. So this is good because I've run out of answers. All right, we'll take a break. Come back in a half an hour. And uh, next next week we're going to look at Mike. Are you doing next week? It's on. Uh, good luck. I, I did. I did God in forty five. You're going to do Jesus in forty five. No, no small task. And we're going to keep plowing through this. And as I said, we're going to try to add this to our membership class where everyone goes through this just so we all know we're on the same page. We'll see you back in uh, just a few minutes. And if you, uh, 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 well, I'll tell you later. See you back.